So today's going to be um, a little different. We're going, we're still in our ancient Cliff Notes series. So what we're doing in our ancient Cliff Notes series is we are taking stories from the Old Testament and we're trying to give you a Cliff Notes version, an overview of what that story was, and then help make a practical application for today. What, it is, what is it that we can get from these stories from the Old Testament that are hundreds and thousands of years ago to get an idea for our own lives? Why do we, why do we think God inspired people to write down these stories? What is it that we can take from them that should affect our lives today? So today we're going to be talking about David and Bathsheba. Um, it's a very interesting topic. Uh, if there are children in the room, I, I will not be graphic, but I will be very um, honest with what happened with David and Bathsheba. If you're not aware of the story, there's adultery involved. So this should be really fun for us this morning. That's, that's what I'm going to say. It's a really fun topic. Um, and today we're going to be talking a lot about sin. And I feel like that can make us a little uncomfortable. And I'm hoping that we can look at this story of David and Bathsheba. And David was known as a man after God's own heart. That's what God said when he called Samuel to anoint him as king. He said, I've picked out someone who is after my heart, who, who wants the things that God wants. And I think that's something that all of us who have a relationship with God, we kind of want that to be said about us. We go, I, I want to want what God wants. I want to have the same heart that God has for people and for this city and for my coworkers. But even if we're after God's heart and we want to be like God, we mess up. And I think we can find a lot of hope in the story of David and how he handles this situation. I think there's a lot that we can learn about sin and about ourselves. So I'm actually going to do this a little different. I only have a few minutes because this is a cliff notes and this is, there's so much going on and, and God's been just rocking my world with this for over a week now. Um, I was going to speak on something else and last Sunday night he just kind of um, used a, a music to, to really shift my thinking for this whole week. And there's, there's a good chance it could get a little emotional for me just because I'm still really processing a lot of this and um, God's really, this is like a, one of those kind of earth-shattering ideas that God's really been working in me, so stick with me. Um, but we're going to go through this story really fast, and we're going to spend a majority of our time talking about what we can learn. So I'm actually going to ask you guys to open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. So our story today takes place in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, and it goes all the way to chapter 12, verse 25. Um, I'm not going to read it. I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version. We're going to read a few verses as we go, and then we're really going to talk about um, what happens. So I'm going to ask you guys, I do this a lot. I teach downstairs with the kids a lot, and sometimes I feel like this helps kids. I promise them candy, too. I don't have candy for you guys, so I'm just kind of hoping you guys buy in because you're adults. But I want you guys to look for three different things with me as I go through this story. And then I'm going to tell the story, and hopefully you can kind of categorize these three things that we're trying to learn today, and then I'll come back to it at the end, and I'll actually walk us through it a little bit more. But just so that your minds are kind of in the same place where I am as, we, as I talk through this story, um, the first thing is our response to sin. So in the story, we're going to be looking at David. We're going to be looking at how he responds 
to the sin of adultery that he commits with Bathsheba. And I think we can learn a lot about how we deal with sin and how we respond when we mess up. The second thing is our response when other people sin. And I think we're going to see from David, there's going to be a difference, spoiler alert, there's going to be a difference between how he deals with his own sin and how he deals with sin that he thinks other people are doing. And then the third one, and this is the big one, is God's response to sin. And I hope we can bring um, some clarity to this in our own lives. So just to start off, I do want to give a loose definition of sin. And when I think of sin, the, the, the word from the Greek and all of that has, has this idea that you're missing the mark, right? It's kind of like an archer that's shooting at a target. He misses the mark. I like to think of it as something... The simplest way for me to understand sin is that it's something that separates us from God. When we fall short of what God wants for our lives, when we fall short of what's God's best for our lives, that's sin. And when we have sin in our lives, it separates us from God. That's why Jesus came. He died on the cross for our sins. He was raised back to life to defeat our sin so that we could be in relationship with God. Because if we have sin in our lives and we live in sin, without forgiveness from God, we can't be in relationship with him. So that's kind of the framework of what we're going to be doing today. Is everybody with me so we can hit the ground running and, and make this happen? Okay. I saw three people nod, so that's good enough for me. Three is a pretty good percentage. God, thank you so much for everything that you've done for us, for everything that you're going to do. Lord, we thank you that your love is greater than our sin, that you bring us back to you. God, give us a clear understanding of what it is that you want to speak to us today. God, speak to our hearts. Change us. Make us new. We love you, Jesus. We pray all this in your name. Amen. All right. Here we go. Back to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. This is how it starts. David it's the spring. So the Bible says that it's the time when kings go to war. So basically the winter's over. It's time to start fighting again. But at the beginning, it says that David chose to stay home when kings normally went to war. So the first thing we see is that David isn't exactly where he's supposed to be. He's kind of taking a break. He's going, you know what? They're going to be able to handle this. I don't need to go and do what I'm supposed to do. I'm the king. I can stay home. I don't need to go fight. The next thing, David wakes up from a nap because no vacation from what you're supposed to do is complete without an afternoon nap. So he wakes up from the nap and he starts walking around his roof, the rooftop of the palace in the cool of the night or the evening, the afternoon. And he looks over at his neighbor's house and there's no roofs and he can see a woman bathing. And he goes, okay, she's very pretty. And so he asks one of his servants, he goes, who is that woman that's bathing? Because I'm interested. And he goes, that is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, a little bit of background. Uriah the Hittite was one of David's mighty men. So at the end of 2 Samuel, there is a passage that talks about David's, basically like his homeboys, his, his bodyguard, his tightest dudes. There were these three guys that were like the best of the best. And then there were another 30 that were kind of like David's go-to Navy SEALs type men. Like if he needed something done, he went to the 30. And we find out at the end of 2 Samuel that Uriah 
is one of the 30. So we know that Uriah is one of David's good friends. Um, Another thing is, he lived right next door to the palace, which means there had to be a level of trust to let this guy live right next door to where the king is. So all that, he goes, who is that? They go, oh, that's Bathsheba, that's Uriah's wife. You know Uriah, like your guy. He's like, okay, then David says, bring her to me after he asks who it is. He, it's, it's basically a formality because you can tell he had already made the decision in his mind what he was gonna do no matter what the answer was that came back. Because it would have been a lot easier if they're like, oh, it's just some, some lady, we don't know who she is. It'd be like, perfect. But he goes, hey, it's one of your friends. And he's like, you know what? I'm still going through with it. So he goes, bring her to me. He sleeps with her. And then he sends her back home. And this is where we start to see how he starts to deal with his own sin. So he sends her home and goes, sweet, your eye will never know. You know, I got to uh, take care of business. I got to get that, you know, taken care of. The temptation's gone. I took care of business. Now she's back home, have nothing to worry about. And then it says later that Bathsheba sends a message to David and says, I'm pregnant. So now things are complicated. He thought it was a little one and done. He got it taken care of. He doesn't have to worry about it anymore. But instead, now he's going, now there's evidence. And he knows from the Levitical law in Leviticus 20, verse 10, it says that if a man and woman are caught in adultery, they, adultery, adultery, like the band, ugh. If they're caught listening to Daughtry, they should be stoned as well. No, I'm just kidding. I loved him. He should have won. Taylor Hicks was a joke. Sorry, American Idol. I, don't, I stopped watching after that season, I'll be honest. Um, he goes, I know if I'm caught committing adultery, I'm going to be stoned and so is she. Now, honestly, as the king, he probably could have gotten away with it. But he knew that Bathsheba being pregnant, it was obvious it wasn't Uriah's baby because he's been at war. And she's going to be killed. And it's his baby that's in her that's going to be killed. So he goes in to cover-up mode. So he thought it was all done when he sent her home. He's like, okay, I'm good. Now there's a complication. He's like, okay, we got to cover this up. So he sends for Uriah from battle. He, he tells his commander, he goes, hey, send Uriah to give me a report, right? He's one of my friends. Have him tell me how the war's going. So Uriah comes. He's like, hey, tell me how the war's going. And Uriah's like, it's great. We're, we're killing people. And he's like, awesome. And, um, and then David's like, you know what? You're such a good friend. You've worked so hard. Go home. Be with your wife. Take a night off. And David, obviously his plan is going, now Uriah will think that it's his baby. I'm good. He even sends a gift home. I don't know what that gift was. It might have been like champagne. I don't know what you would get, like flower petals. He's like, make it nice for Bathsheba. She'll she'll enjoy it. Uriah refuses. He sleeps on the steps of the palace with the bodyguards instead of going home, which was another maybe 50 feet, you know? Like, he could have gone home. He could have been with his wife, but he goes, I'm going to stay on the steps. So the next day, David goes, why didn't you go home like I said? And Uriah's like, how am I supposed to go home and enjoy my wife and enjoy my home when all of my brothers are still battling, when the ark is living in a tent, when, when we're at war and I'm supposed to be at war, why would I go home and be with my wife? That's not fair. And I, I put myself in David's shoes because that's who I am in this story. And I go, 
man, that had to just kind of be salt in the wound, right? Because the whole reason David slept with Bathsheba is because he wasn't where he was supposed to be. He didn't care that his men were at war. He didn't care that none of them got to experience their wives or their homes or comfort. And here's Uriah getting a chance, an order from the king to go home and sleep with his wife. And he says no, because that wouldn't be fair to the men that he's fighting with. So cover up number two failed. So David goes, okay, well, let's have a really nice dinner and you can go back tomorrow. So he gets Uriah drunk on purpose because he goes, well, once he's drunk, of course he'll go home and he'll be with his wife. He won't be so strong to, you know, keep that from himself. But again, even drunk, Uriah decides to sleep on the steps and not go home to his wife. So at this point, it's been two whole days and David completely gives up on any other options. And the next thing on his mind is I have to kill him. But I'm not going to kill him. So he writes a letter to the commander of the army and says, put Uriah where the battle is the fiercest and then pull back and let him die. So, so he's sending a letter with Uriah that's sealed to give to another one of the 30, the commander that says, hey, kill my boy Uriah. And Uriah's handing this to Joab. Joab reads it and he's like, I'm supposed to kill you. No, he doesn't tell him. But how, how savage is that? He goes, well, I couldn't get him drunk, so now I have to murder him to cover up this sin that I've done. One of his best, 30 best friends is too many. I was talking to James about this. I was like, 30 friends is overwhelming to begin with. But this is one of the dudes that has given his life to David. And he's like, well, now I have to kill you. I tried two other things and they didn't work. So, so it works. Joab puts him where the battle's fiercest. Of course, Uriah, based on this little bit, of course he's all for it. He goes, put me on the front line. I'm gonna do this. He gets killed. So Joab sends a messenger back to David and says, hey, uh, well, the war's not going great. We were defeated. Uriah died. And David goes, you know what? Keep fighting. You know, keep going. His cover-up had finally worked. So after the period of mourning, which was about a week, Bathsheba cried and mourned for a week. And as soon as that was over, David took her into his palace to be his wife. So now, because things moved quick enough, he can convince people with a little fudging of the numbers that she conceived this child with him right after they got married. The cover-up was a success. We pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27. It says, When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her, Bathsheba, and brought her to his palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son. Done. Right? cover up successful. No one's going to know it's his baby done out of wedlock. Uriah is dead. He'll never find out. Here's the hitch in the plan. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. So we're looking at this and we look at how did David respond to his own sin? How do we respond to our sin most of the time? The most elaborate cover up of all cover-ups. I mean, he has a month, basically, give or take, six weeks, who knows exactly back then, where he thought he got away with it. Then he finds out there's a baby, that complicates things. So he comes up with another plan. Within a week, he's able to get Uriah back, tries to get him to sleep with his wife, that doesn't work, he has Uriah murdered, he gets to marry Bathsheba, now everything's good. 
and he's going on living his life. And it says Bathsheba gave birth to a son. So everything worked out. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. And so often we think the most elaborate cover-ups for our sin, big or small, adultery seems like a bigger sin. Other sins seem smaller, a little lie covered up by more lies. But either way, like we said at the beginning, sin is missing the mark of God's standard and it separates us from him. So the biggest sin or the smallest sin separates us from God. And God was displeased. So we start in chapter 12 now and the prophet Nathan comes to David. God tells Nathan the prophet to come to David and to tell him this story. So he comes to David, he goes, all right, there was this man He's going, king, I need you to make a judgment on this, basically. He goes, there was a man, a very rich man and a very poor man. The rich man had tons of cattle, tons of sheep. He was rich. He had land. He had everything. The poor man had one lamb. Now, this lamb was like a member of their family. She ate dinner with the family. The kids loved her. She was like a pet lamb, right? And he goes, now, the rich man had a guest come to his house, and instead of slaughtering one of his own sheep, he went And he took the poor man's sheep and he slaughtered it to serve to his guest. So basically, Nathan is is telling this horrible story of this guy who had everything and decided to take some guy's thing and it was the only thing he had. And David's reaction in verse 5 and 6 makes sense to us. says, David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. So this man, all he did was take another dude's sheep and David's saying he deserves to die. Now remember Leviticus 20.10 says if a man and woman caught in adultery, they should both be killed. But David's going, this dude just took another guy's sheep. He deserves to die. Verse six, he must repay four lambs to the poor man for the ones he stole and for having no pity. Now we saw how David reacted to his own sin. Now we're seeing how David reacts to the perceived sin of someone else. David committed adultery, murdered one of his friends, and pretended like he didn't do it. But this, some random dude who he doesn't know, took another guy's lamb and he goes, you know what? He has to give him four lambs and then he has to be killed for it. How often is that us? We have our own issues, we have our own sin. But as soon as we find out someone else is doing something, man, God needs to punish them. Man, God needs to make that right. You know, that's not right. He shouldn't take advantage of someone else. That person deserves the punishment that they've got coming to them. They shouldn't have done that. They deserve to be punished. That's how we react to other people's sin in relation to our own sin. Now, All sin is equal in the eyes of God. It all separates us from him. It's all missing the mark, right? He loves us no matter what we do, whether we took somebody's lamb or committed adultery and murdered somebody, right? So God's forgiveness and his love is the same. But we're human, right? So if someone was like, all right, you have to pick a sin. Are you going to commit adultery and murder somebody or are you going to take somebody's sheep? I think we'd all go, you know what? I think I'll take the sheep. That's not a big deal. Like, I can always just replace the sheep. It's not, it's not a huge deal. But that's what Nathan is trying to get David to understand. That's what God's trying to get David to understand, is that 
you're so ready to punish someone else's sin, something that is slightly disguised as not our own sin is so much easier to condemn. It's so much easier to ask for justice, right? That's what David's wanting. David's going, I want justice for this poor man. And then here's verse seven. This is the one that gets you. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. You are that man. You are the one that took something that didn't belong to you from someone who had so much less than you. And often I think that's the mentality that we need to keep when we hear that someone else is doing something wrong, when we hear that someone else is committing this heinous sin that we think is so wrong and is wrong. It's not just that we think it. It's they can be doing something that's actually wrong. At the end of the day, we are that man. We also sin. We also miss the mark. We are also separated from God because of our choices and because of things that we do that aren't right. And I think there's such a big difference between how we view our own sin and how we view other people's sin, right? Because we see, oh, I don't, I don't struggle with stealing lambs. That's not my problem. That deserves to be made right. But when we think we've successfully covered up our own sin, we're not calling for justice in our own lives because of the shame and the guilt that we feel because we knew it was wrong, right? That's why David did this. He knew the law. He knew what was wrong. And so that's why he covered it up. And I think this is huge because the way that God has Nathan bring this story to him and bring this conviction is not by going, Nathan doesn't show up and go, David, I know you sinned. I know you did what was wrong. You got to make it right. No, he appeals to David's compassion. He appeals to David's desire for justice, the desire to do what was right that was in him. And he kind of, he meets him where he's at and goes, this isn't right, right? Like, look at this situation. This isn't right, is it? No, that's not right. Well, you are that man. You are the one who did something that wasn't right. Now, verse 13, David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. Now the consequences are still there. The child ends up dying right after it's born, shortly after it's born. David tries to fast and pray to save the child's life. It doesn't happen. There's still these consequences and there's a lot of other consequences that we could get to in other stories and we might where... God basically goes, this thing that you've done in private, I'm going to do it publicly to you. But we get to this point where the child dies. And then we're going to look at it in a little bit. David writes Psalm 51 in response. But now let's reset. So the, the three things that we were looking for, our response to sin, our response to other people's sin, and God's response to sin. So God didn't come with a condemning voice going, you screwed up, you need to make this right. 
he reached out and he met him where he was at and he met him with love going, don't you want something better? He wanted something better for the poor man. Don't you want something better for yourself? And when I have those experiences with God and with the Holy Spirit of conviction, I have not yet in my life had an experience where I felt like God was pointing at me going, you deserve punishment. You deserve this. You need to. But he simply reaches out and goes, I love you. I still love you. And because I'm aware of my own sin that I've been covering up like David, it breaks me. Because I look at other people and I look at other situations and I go, man, that's so jacked up. And God goes, you're that man. You're just as likely to screw up. But here I am, reaching out my hand, meeting you where you're at, going, let's fix this. Let's make this better. Let's quit making you feel so distant from me. So how should we respond? So the first thing, I want to define three words for us and and kind of go back to like what they meant in the Bible and then kind of make a working definition for us today. The first word um, is the word conviction. Now, I I pulled from 2 Timothy 3.16 and Hebrews 11.1. And 2 Timothy, it's talking about that the word of God is useful for teaching, rebuking. And that's the kind of the word that we're using is the correction. This idea of convicting our hearts. And then in Hebrews 11.1, it's talking about that faith is believing what we cannot see. So it comes from a Greek word that's basically translated proof, test, or evidence. So it's this idea of going, conviction is acknowledgement of of proof and evidence of our sin, right? So the the working definition we're going to go with is conviction is the acknowledgement of the evidence and proof of sin based on God's definition of sin. So when we're convicted of our sin, when we know what we've done is wrong, that's us acknowledging that we were tested up against God's standard and we fell short, right? It's that that feeling inside where we know we didn't measure up. I love in Acts chapter 2, Peter's talking, this is Pentecost, it's the very first like big sermon conversion after Jesus went back up to heaven. 2,000 people get saved. And this is the word that's used. It's the word pierced. The people say, what you've said, when, when Peter gives this gospel presentation, they go, you've pierced our hearts. This word means to prick violently or to pierce all the way down and emotionally pierced through. So I look at that and I go, that's kind of what conviction feels like. Excuse me being emotionally pierced through, where I have this moment where God meets me where I'm at, and I feel like I just, I'm so sorry. I fell short. I didn't measure up. I acknowledged that I did what was wrong, and I tried to cover it up, but now you're, you're meeting me, and you're saying that you want to make it right because you want to be in relationship with me. The second word is confess. This is seen in Romans 10 and in 1 John 1, 9 where it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. This word confess 
comes from a Greek word that means to speak the same or to agree or voice the same conclusion. So basically, when we're confessing our sin, we're, we're saying we agree to call what we did sin. And sometimes that's the hardest part. Sometimes we want to justify it. We want to twist it and say, well, it's not my fault, or oh, I don't know if it's that bad, or I don't know if it's a sin. But when we confess, that's us inside our hearts confessing and saying, no, we agree that what we did was wrong. So the, the working definition we're going to have for us today is that confessing is agreeing that we have done, that what we have done is a sin, and voicing our agreement. Now, I put that little emphasis on voicing our agreement because I think that's the hardest part. I think that's where we often fall short. I think there's a lot of power in saying things with our voice. I think in our mind and in our hearts and in our heads, we can confess and we can go, yes, I know that was wrong. I acknowledge that what I did was wrong. But there's a different freedom that comes when we speak it. And the Bible says to confess your sins to one another, and that's where healing can be found. And sometimes it's hard. Sometimes you don't have that many people in your life that you're like, I can truly confess my sins to them. And we're going to address that a little bit in our response to sin, because I think it's our own fault that people don't confess their sin to us. But even when we're praying, I think that the shift of hearing our own voices say that we agree that what we did wasn't right, even if we're just talking to God, he knows our thoughts. We don't have to pray out loud for him to hear us. But I think there can be a certain healing that comes when we hear our own voices acknowledge that we want to be different, that we agree to take responsibility for what we've done. The last word is repent. So often we talk about confessing our sins and repenting as two separate things. So I kind of want to go through that. Now, over and over in Jesus' ministry, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is here. And then in Acts 2, that same passage we talked about earlier, Peter, the direction that he gave to the group of people was to repent. Now, the, the Greek word that that comes from means to change one's mind or purpose to think differently afterwards. So when we're confessing, we're saying, yes, what I did was wrong. What I did was a sin. I agree that that was wrong. When we're repenting, we are turning from the sin that we confessed, and then we are living and thinking differently. That's going to be kind of our working definition of going, not only do we confess and admit that what we did was wrong, but we repent and we want to be different. We want to turn from that. We want to live differently. We want to think about that sin differently, that we don't want to fall back into it. Now, this is what David did in Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4. This is how we see the conviction, the confession, the repentance come. And I want to read these real quick. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say. And your judgment against me is just. Now we can see the pieces in there. He says, I recognize my rebellion. Clean me from my sin. Clean me from my guilt. He's saying, I'm owning up. I'm acknowledging that what I did wasn't right. 
but I want it to be right. Against you have I sinned. I've separated myself from you, God. I want to make it right. So that's how we should respond to our own sin. It's kind of that process of like, we feel that conviction and we go, okay, I know that was wrong. Then we have to confess it. We have to voice our agreement and go, I did what was wrong. And then the repentance side of it is going, and I don't want to be the same way. I want to turn from that. I want to think and live differently. The second thing that we looked at is how we respond to how others, to when others sin. And I mentioned earlier, this is why people, we don't like confessing our sins to one another because often we're met with condemnation, we're met with a consequence, we're met with, well, you know you shouldn't have done that, right? And it's like, no, duh, that's why I'm telling you. That's like the definition of confess, is I'm saying I know it was wrong. I don't need you to beat a dead horse and tell me how wrong I was. I'm coming to you because I'm looking for healing. I'm looking for support. And when we look at Luke chapter 15, there's three stories that Jesus tells. He tells the story of a woman that loses a coin, of a man that loses a sheep, and a story a lot of us are familiar with is the prodigal son. Now, all those stories have a point. All of those stories, even though they weren't real, they were parables. So they had a moral. Jesus was trying to convey an idea. So the story of the coin, the woman loses her coin. She finds it after searching and searching. And the last line that Jesus said is, it's the same in heaven when even one sinner repents, there is rejoicing, right? Okay. So he goes, okay, there's story one. Story two, a guy has a hundred sheep. He loses one. He leaves the 99. He goes and he finds the one. When he finds the one, it's like how it is in heaven. There's great rejoicing over one sinner that repents. The third story is the prodigal son. This son goes, hey, dad, I want my inheritance now. I'm going to go waste it all. He goes, he spends all his money on prostitutes and gambling and alcohol and whatever throws his life away. He finds out he's out of money. He goes back home to work for his dad. His dad sees him coming. The dad runs to him. He throws him a party. He kills the best calf. He throws an absolute bash for this son that ran away. And the older brother goes, isn't this your son that went and spent all of his money on prostitutes? Why? Why are we throwing him a party? And the dad goes, because he was lost and now he's found. He was gone, now he's home. And that's the exact same thing. When we repent, when we we tell God that we acknowledge our sin and we want to live differently, there's rejoicing in heaven, right? Every time that happens, there's a party in heaven. Now often, I think this is what God really convicted me of this week is in the church, we are awesome at doing that for people that decide to follow Jesus for the first time, right? So people, they don't know God. They want to accept Jesus to come into their lives, to change their lives. We celebrate. We're excited. We're joyful. We're happy. You know, we hear about people and missionaries going and seeing people come to know Jesus that never knew him before, and we celebrate. But I think that in those three stories, that wasn't, That wasn't the point. It wasn't a new coin that they found. It wasn't a new sheep that they found. It wasn't a new son that they were celebrating. They were people that were in the family. They were in the fold. They left, made their own choices, 
and then they came back and that's when the joy was. How often do we as a church, do we as Christians, do we as people celebrate when people tell us how they screwed up? Kind of seems oxymoron, right? We're like, oh no, we shouldn't, we shouldn't support their sin. We shouldn't tell them that it's okay. It's like, whoever said we said it was okay, the fact that they're confessing it is them acknowledging that it was not okay. But why are we not a community where people can come and go, man, I screwed up. I wasn't living for God. I was doing my own thing, but I'm gonna make it right and I'm gonna live differently. What's the first response we often get from our Christian friends? Well, you know, you shouldn't have done that. I can't believe you did that. You shouldn't do that again. Oh man, now we, we gotta go, you know, you're gonna lose your position. You're gonna, you're gonna have to come under these consequences and these punishments. Oh, when did that become our responsibility? We know in the story of David, God still carried out consequences. The child still died. There were still consequences that David faced for the rest of his life. God said, your family will die by the sword. David's family died by the sword. But was it Nathan that said, you know what, here's the consequences, you know, and he did, but he said they were from God, but that wasn't the response. The very first thing that Nathan said was, yes, you have sinned, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this. We have to respond with joy to people repenting. We have to create a community and relationships where repentance is celebrated and not met with condemnation and consequence because the whole thing is sin grows in darkness. David did all that covering up and it just kept growing, right? It snowballed bad. It went from, I'm just gonna trick my friend. I'm gonna get my friend drunk. I'm gonna murder my friend. I'm gonna keep covering it up. (laughs) That escalated quickly because when we cover up our sin and we give it the darkness and we give it the isolation, that's where it can grow. But when we bring it to the light, when we confess it, when we voice our agreement that what we did was wrong, it takes the power away from sin. And that's what Jesus did on the cross as he took that power away that when we bring it to the light, it can't survive. When we have a community and when we have relationships with people where we can bring those things to the light and they're there to fight with us, not further push us away, not further try to make you feel bad for what you did. You already know what you did was wrong. We need to be people that celebrate the change. Because at the end of the day, what did Nathan say? You are that man. Right? So when your friend comes to you and they're like, hey man, I've really been struggling with this. That's a a really nice word that we use when you're not struggling with it. You are giving into it, but that's a whole other thing. Man, I've just been, I've been dealing with this sin in my life and I want to get rid of it. The first thought shouldn't be, oh man, I can't believe you did that. The first thought should be, I am that man. I am that woman. I am that person that does the same thing they do, that I think something else is gonna be better than God. And I was wrong. Now the last part was, what's God's response? I love this. Psalm 51, this is the, towards the end of what David was writing about God, verses 16 and 17. You do not desire sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. 
The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. If you guys could stand. We're going to do communion a little differently today. So um, whoever's bringing the table over, you can go ahead and bring it over while we're standing. God doesn't want our sacrifices. He doesn't want all these things from us. He just wants us to be broken over our sin, broken over the fact that our relationship with him isn't right. Because that's how he feels. Yes, sin angers God and there's, you know, all of that. But at the end of the day, when he looks at us, he doesn't get angry when he sees our sin. It breaks his heart because he wants to be close to us. He desires a broken spirit. God will never reject a broken and repentant heart. So we're going to do communion a little different today. Um, This might be the first time we've done this in years, but we're actually going to take it together. So what I'm going to ask you guys to do is when you come up, so to take communion at our church, you don't have to be a member of our church. You just have to have a relationship with God. You have to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and we're all part of family then. You don't have to be at this church every week or whatever. You just have to know Jesus. So what I'm going to ask you to do is when you come up and you take the bread, you dip it in the juice. Don't dip it too much because you're kind of going to be holding it. You don't want like grape juice over your whole hand. It'll be a lot. And then just come and stand up here and we're all going to be together. And I'm going to kind of lead us through reading some verses as prayers to God. Because I think a lot of this, this idea of, of wanting to get rid of the sin in our lives It obviously starts with us and it starts with us making a decision that we want God to cleanse us from our sin. But we have to create that community because it doesn't matter how much we on our own want to get rid of sin. If we're not in a community and relationships that are supporting that and rejoicing over people's lives changing, even for the 700th time they've done that same sin, if we're not rejoicing that they want to change, then things aren't going to change. It takes a community And that's why we want to take communion together today, kind of all together going, God, we need you. We want to create a space where it's safe to share where we mess up so that there can be healing, so that there can be true repentance and change. So you guys can come on up. Emily's going to play a little bit and then we'll take communion together.